Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Happy Father's Day. Do we got fathers out here? If you're a father, stand. Let's, let's recognize. All right, this is me. <laughs> Do you have a dog that maybe we can, a cat? If you got a cat, just go out the back door. We don't care. Oh, man. Let me change my sermon then. This is Father's Day. No, this is, it is a Father's Day message because it is Father's Day, but it's really just practical things that God has taught me by being a father about himself. It's not so much about these are tips just for dads. These are tips for all of us. These are things that, that as I parented, as I fathered my, my three daughters, um, God just started instilling a, a deeper understanding and knowledge of these three attributes in his life. I could have chosen 10 or 15 different things, but these are just kind of three strong things that, that, that God has, has uh, taught me. In case you don't know, my name is Steve Cantor. I'm uh, one of the, <laughs> thank you. Some do know. Um, I'm one of the elders here. I thought all you guys dropped out of church. You weren't at the four o'clock service. I thought, man, where are they going? Uh, but now, you know, we're normally at the four o'clock service, so it's good to see you. We'll have to stop by the six o'clock service every now and then just to uh, see some of our old friends. But it's, it's good. It's good. It's Father's Day. Call in the right-hander. Steve, the oldest dad here, come preach. That's what you get to do. It's respecting your elders, I think, is what, what Pastor James is doing. Uh, but being a dad today is not easy. It, it's a difficult task. Being a parent is not easy. But the thing is, you know, we talk about church and that church is not like a family, that it is a family. So we all share in responsibility of raising the kids in this church and helping one another grow. So these are truths that we have to point each other to. But there are so many things that, that I have learned that God used me being a parent to teach, um, to teach me about him. And, but there's a lot of things like about parenting that I kind of knew I mean, I had this principle, I, I knew certain things, but it wasn't until we had kids that like the specifics of them came to light. For instance, um, I knew you had to be careful what you feed a baby. You know, I, did, I knew you didn't give them chicken bones. I know you didn't just throw anything in front of them when they're a year old. Chicken wings are my favorite food. I'm not gonna, you know, get some spicy wings and start giving it to my one-year-old or my, my baby when she was one-year-old. She's 18 now, it's a long time ago. But I knew better than that. I knew we didn't do that. But I had no idea that you couldn't give a baby honey. I mean, to me, it was like, dip the pacifier in honey, stick it in their mouth, they'll stop crying for a little while. And my wife's like, no, that'll kill them because honey has a certain bacteria in it, right? That if a baby can't digest and they don't have the immune system to fight it. So it could literally kill a baby. So I, I knew this kind of principle, you just can't feed a baby anything, but I didn't know the specific that you should not, cannot give a baby honey. Maybe I've saved some of you for the future. <laughs> um, the other thing I learned is I knew like you couldn't take a one-year-old and just throw them in the air and catch them. You gotta wait till they're about two and a half to do that. Um, maybe two, I don't know, it's been so long. But you know, you, you just couldn't jar around, pass them around like a football, especially after they just ate. But you know, what's wrong with a little airplane ride and a little swaying back and forth? Well, it becomes a problem when you're at a Mexican restaurant and they just ate and you're like, oh, that's my girl. And then they spit up right in your mouth. 
and it drips down all the way down your side. So I knew this basic principle that you had to be careful handling a baby, burp them, all of that. But I didn't know the specifics of what limit I could, could test those things. And, and I found out really quick when Maddie spit up right in my mouth. And she, we're still trying to get even for that one with her. I've learned a lot of things about, um, about parenting. I've learned a lot of things through my kids really practical things that just kind of exposed my ignorance, uh, that, you know, I, I had these basic principles and ideas, but I just didn't have the specifics. But more so, God used parenting for me to teach me some very specific principles about him. I mean, I understood all three of these points. They, they weren't new to me when I started fathering that we're going to be talking about but the way that God drove them deep down into the, my heart and made them more of a, a sense of, of my, who I understand God to be and my identity in him. And, and that's what I wanna talk about. I wanna share what being a dad has taught me about God the Father. And again, this is not just by any means for that. This is for all of us. These are true attributes of God that we all have to understand and grasp. God has just used this certain thing in my life to help me understand those things a little bit better. And the first thing I want to talk about is that God is patient. Amen? God is patient. Uh, God, the first thing that he really taught me about himself is his patience. There's nothing for me, the understanding of, there's nothing like being a dad to three daughters than to learn patience. Especially a dad to three daughters that are two are teenagers, one might as well be a teenager in one bathroom in New York City. It, you learn patience, it breeds patience. This, this whole idea of learning to adjust. Patience is a premium in our day and in our city. I can get on Amazon and order an umbrella. Several months back, I, I, it was supposed to rain in the afternoon and I'm sitting in my office and I order an umbrella on Amazon and about two or three hours later, it's delivered in my office so that I can walk outside with an umbrella. We, patience is a premium. Fast food isn't uh, quick enough, so now I can get on an app and order my Chipotle, order McDonald's, whatever I want, and it's there waiting for me when I go to pick it up because fast food is just not fast enough. Keurig is designed for impatient people, right? You just pop that pot in there, it gives you an instant cup of coffee because we can't wait long enough for the whole pot to brew. Uh, we are always finding new ways to get around this, this line or, or to speed things up. And, and there's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing uh, innately bad about conveniences, but it does make us ask if, if having our way, the right way all the time um, doesn't overblow expectations and provide this kind of sense of instant gratification. Uh, today is, is kind of a bittersweet day for my wife and I. Uh, our oldest daughter, Katie Beth, uh, I call her Cootie Breath, and she was in here in the earlier service. I called her Cootie Breath in front of her too, so it's all good. Um, but Katie Beth, is she graduates this Friday or Saturday from high school. And then, yeah, I'll tell her you clap. She graduates, and then she's gonna go to the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. Uh, she's gonna live with some family, and so she's actually gonna move next week to Ohio and start kind of getting settled in, look for jobs, and do things in that you have to learn how to do in Ohio that you don't have to learn in New York City, like drive a car. Uh, never, doesn't know how to drive a car yet. She's driven a few times, but we're still working on that. So it's, it's a little bit bittersweet. Um, 
Katie Beth, my oldest daughter, I, I can say uh, with all, you know, just like kind of sincerity that I'm really, really gonna miss her. Uh, she is, uh, she's the, of my three girls, she's the one that's most like me. When she had her ultrasound picture taken, you know, the old school, we, don't, we didn't have the 3D ones, the fancy ones that they have now. But when we had the ultrasound picture taken, she even looked like me, like in the womb. My wife would show the picture to somebody and they, oh, she's got her daddy's nose. And so we, we knew right away she was gonna look like me. And thankfully her nose looks better on her than it does on me. So or our nose looks better on her than, than me. But, um, but also in her personality, she, she just always in her humor, you know, just that, just a little bit inappropriate joke, like Katie, stop that, <laughs> you know, but you wanna laugh. Um, she, her, her demeanor is very similar to mine. She's introverted at times, extroverted at times, but we just share so much in common. And so I'm gonna miss, I'm gonna miss all these things about her. But there was a time, like the first 12 years of her life, like we dreamt of this day. We couldn't wait till it was like, let's just get her out of the house. She was, she was, and I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, maybe I am. No, she really, Jen's like, no, you're not exaggerating. I mean, she was a difficult child to handle. She was very stubborn about certain things, like her clothes that she wore. And it wasn't like about being the most fashionable person or anything. It was just about the way that it felt on, on her. Or she would I'd take her shoes shopping. And I remember her crying and running out of the shoe store because she said that the shoes hurt her feet and they were googly on her. Yet she would walk all day in those plastic princess shoes until she rubbed her feet raw and were basically bleeding and stuff. So just all of these kinds of things like that. And, and her and her mom, she had this... Since, the, since she was about 15 months old and could start talking, she would talk back to her mom and it was usually over clothes, uh, things like that. I remember having to come home from work when she's about two, two and a half years old to break up a fight between my wife and my two-year-old, my two and a half year old child, right? So I thought that my wife would probably end up in jail for beating her or something. And, but something clicked in her around age 12, 13, and her personality just really started coming out and, um, and she is just a ton of fun. But she built this sense of patience in us. I mean, you, you could look at her and you would ask her. I, w- I walked on her dresser one day and it was in like permanent marker and I think also scratched with a key, KB. Her name's Katie Beth. I'm like, Katie, why'd you do this to your dresser? Was it me? Yes, it was. No, it wasn't me. And you knew she did. She'd look you right in the eye and say that. And God reminded me, God drove it home to me that that he is patient with me in my sin. He's patient with me in in the things that I do to frustrate him. The word patience is derived from the Greek word um, and it's translated literally as long-suffering. Long-suffering. So when we read 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, you know, kind of a romantic verse that we read at every wedding. Really, it's saying love is long-suffering. Doesn't sound as beautiful, but, but when you think about it, that you're saying, I'm with you even in the suffering. Love is gonna be tough, it's gonna be hard, but through long-suffering, I'm with you. And that's what God is through our sin and through the way that we treat him. He's saying, I'm with you. This is long-suffering for me. 
this patience, is, is this long-suffering. And it's one of God's attributes, though, is that he is patient with us in our constant belittling and mocking him. See, every time you sin, you're belittling and you're mocking God. You're questioning his authority. You're questioning his intelligence, the way that he wired you. You think, I know myself better than he does, and I know what's right for me. Um, You know, when you watch a kid and you know that they're lying to you, you know they're questioning your authority and your intelligence. Now think about that. That's what we do with an infinite, holy God who put this creation into motion, and we're trying to tell him how he should be running this thing. Psalm 711 says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation, which means anger. He feels wrath and he feels it every day. So it's not a, a, an emotion that comes in, when he had something bad to eat. It's not an emotion that's here or there just kind of depending. No, every day he feels this wrath and anger over our sin. It offends him. It, it, it wounds him. Think about this analogy, because you're thinking, you know, my sin is not that extreme. I I, I don't torture people. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't robbed this big bank or anything. But, But let me share with you an analogy that I've shared here before, and you may have heard it. But the smallest thing in his offense against a holy God, a perfect God. We're just saying you are perfect in all of your ways. The smallest offense. So take lying, for instance. If I lie, I have a couple of dogs and three daughters in a one in a thousand square foot apartment. Crazy. But if I lie to my dog, Asa, one of my dogs, what happens to me? Absolutely nothing. And I do all the time. Go lay down, buddy. I'll take you out in a minute. I'm not taking them out. I'm waiting for the sisters or you know, my daughters to come home. To, hopefully they'll take them out or something. But it's a way and he knows what that means and he goes and lays down. But nothing happens to me. Once or twice, I've probably lied to my girls before. Maybe three times. <laughs> what happens? Not a whole lot. I mean, I, I'm in a position of authority over them. It, it, it affects the way they see me. It affects, you know, there's a a wound in our relationship, but there's really nothing that they can hold over me and impact me in any way. Now, let me take it up a notch. What if I lied to my wife, Jennifer? Now we're starting to feel some pain and trouble, right? It can be anywhere from a long conversation we're gonna have to you're sleeping on the couch to a whole gamut of things. But now all of a sudden there's more consequences to my lies. Did you know if you lie to a judge about certain things, obviously if you lie to a judge, it's, uh, you can go to prison for that, it's perjury. But if you lie to a judge about certain things that puts the national security at risk, that you could be put to death. So if a man lies to another man and can be put to death, what is the expectations when we lie to a holy God? That when we offend a holy God, that is perfect in all of his ways, that is righteous, that is pure, that put this whole thing to work and by just the, you know, the commands of his voice created this world and put it into motion and knows how it runs. And then in our sin, we're trying to tell him, you don't know what you're doing. Well, a fair punishment would be death. 
But praise God, the cross takes God's anger, that wrath towards us, and replaces it with his delight and joy. In 1 John 4.10, it says, this is love. Not that, he loved, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Who's this verse four? The best news I'm gonna read today is this, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but what? But is patient is patient, he's long-suffering towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you are in your, in your journey with him. You, you could be as lost as you think. You could be so far away from God. And it says he's wanting you to come back. He's long-suffering over you and your sin. He's willing to put up with it because he wants you to come back. He's patient. He wants you to know him, and have a relationship with him. When it comes to your sin, the, the father is long-suffering. He has patience towards you. My, my children have helped me understand that through their own sin. They have helped me understand my sin. When I recognize and I see them wounding me as a father, I recognize and I realize how much I wound my God, my heavenly father. And he is patient towards me. And for that, I am so so grateful. Uh, the second thing I've learned about God by being a dad is that God provides. That God provides. One of the most dysfunctional father-son stories you'll ever read in any book is found in the Bible about Abraham and Isaac. You think you may have some daddy wounds and some daddy issues? Most likely your dad didn't tie you down to an altar to sacrifice you before cutting you loose. All right, so this guy walked around with some daddy issues. He had good reason to be jaded by his dad. Let me, let me share a little story. It's uh, Genesis 22. I think it's actually one through 12. I, I gave them the wrong slides and I only put part of them up there. So I'll read uh, some out of my Bible that you won't have on the screen. But um, let me set this up. Abraham was an old man. In fact, the Bible describes his wife as good as dead. So you have to be pretty old to be described as somebody as good as dead. And so he was an old man, did not have any children, but God made him this outlandish promise. He says, you're gonna be the father of this great nation. So an old man, no children, you're gonna be the father of this great nation. And then it took about 25 years, uh, but then God fulfilled, started to fulfill what looked like that promise could actually come, come about. He gave him a son. And the, and the son's name was Isaac. And there were some other things that happened during that 25 years of Abraham being impatient while God was patient. But he finally has this son. And then God comes to him. And, and let me start reading verses, verse one. After these things, God tested, excuse me. Says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, here I am. And said, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, the Lord said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering to the one of the mountain, to, on one of the mountains, which I will share and tell you, which I shall tell you, excuse me. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, two of his servants with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. 
On verse five, then it says, then Abraham said to his young men, to those servants, he says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Other uh, translations, that there's a plural there. Other translation says, we will come to you. So I and the boy are gonna go worship and then we will come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, uh, excuse me, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And then Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both, so they went both of them together. Uh, in verse nine, and this is where I don't have the slides, I'm sorry. It says, when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God. And since you have not withheld your only son from me, Abraham, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. There, there are a couple, there's so much application from this story. We could preach a whole series just on this story, but there's three things that really stand out to me in this story that God has taught me through this story and through parenting. One is that there is this correlation between our faith, expectation, and God's actions. There's a correlation between our faith expectations, what, what we think God can do and what God does. Um, look at verse five. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over and worship and then we'll come back again to you. You see what his expectation? He's going up the mountain to slaughter his son. But he's coming back with his son. He says, we're gonna go and then we're gonna come back. There was an expectation that God was gonna deliver. That God in some way, in some miraculous way, that God was gonna provide either an alternate uh, a sacrifice or something. He said, we're gonna go up and worship and then we're gonna come back down. We'll be with you. My, my daughter, Maddie, when she was about maybe two and a half, three years old, she had a little paper cut on her finger. You know how paper cuts are. They burn. They hurt really bad, but they heal really quick, right? So being a good dad, I'm like, let me throw some salt on. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> being a good dad, I'm like, let me teach her a God thing here. Let me try to, you know, instill some, a principle that God heals. So I said, Maddie, let's pray. Let's ask God to heal your paper cut. You know, I'm putting it on the tee for God. Like he's playing tee ball. He's all-star major leagues every day, but I felt like I needed to put one on the tee for God. And guess what happened the next day? It's healed. She's excited. God, God healed my finger, and he did. And we prayed with an expectation that God would heal this finger. I've seen it, I've had hundreds of cuts. I know he's healed mine, he'll heal yours. Let's pray that God will do this. So it was this expectation. But you fast forward now, she's 17 years old and my daughter deals with uh, depression. 
Uh, she's tried to hurt herself and things in the past, and it's, it's something that we just constantly are having to deal with now, that, we're, that we're, it's, a, it's a family fight and a battle for her right now. And God asked, God reminded me of this paper cut story. And he says, do you pray for your daughter with that same kind of expectation that I can take this away from her? I mean, paper cuts, that's t-ball. But do you believe that in my power that I can remove this from her? And it's changed the way that I've tried to pray for her because I wanted to remove from her. I don't want to fight this battle. I just want it gone. I want to let God to fight it for me. So there, in this story, the expectations of our faith are often matched by God's actions. N- number two, here's another truth from the story of Abraham and Isaac. In, in our most difficult times and when things seem impossible, God provides. He gives, he delivers the, the, the sacrifice. He brings out a ram. He, he, he tells, has the angels say, stop, don't hurt this boy. And then he provides another alternative sacrifice. Here's what I've noticed I do as a dad. It's probably part man, it's part Steve personality, and it's just, you know, uh, still where God is chiseling at me. I like to provide for my family, and I like my family to know that I've provided for them. So if we need something, I try to work harder at it. If, If it's money, if it's emotional support, whatever it is, I wanna work really hard and provide that and give that to my kids. And you know, that's, that's good. God has told us um, as fathers in the household to, to do those things. But the reality is when I try to provide for my kids, I have an emotional bank. I can only provide so much and then I get frustrated. Uh, if I try to provide for them financially, I have, I have a limited bank account and I can only provide so much and it will never be enough. My love I mean, again, I have a capacity level. I can't give them what what they need. God, though, according to his riches, not Steve's riches, but according to his riches provides financially. God, according to his riches, can provide for them emotionally. God, according to his riches, can provide for them in the love that they need. So God provides. He, He gives them the things that they need. Here's the third thing from this story that I really learned, um, that when I saw this, it just kind of rocked my world. Verse six, and it says, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. Think about this story. The pictures that maybe if you grew up in church, um, you've seen pictures of this before and it's a little four or five-year-old boy laying on this altar with this large man over top of him with a knife What's it say Abraham did right here? He laid the wood on Isaac's back and Isaac carried the wood up this mountain. See, Isaac wasn't a three or four or five-year-old boy. He was probably 12 to 15 years old. In that culture, in that time, he was a young man. We already know Abraham was as good as dead. He was an old, fragile man. And here you have this young, strong, 12 to 15-year-old young man And yet, he put himself on that altar. He let his dad tie him to that altar. He knew what was coming next. I think that Abraham led his family in such a way that Isaac said, my dad follows God, I'm gonna follow my dad. And so the challenge for me is always, man, do I lead my family in a way that when I put them in a dangerous situation, 
they're willing to follow? Do you lead your sphere of influence in a way that they say, it doesn't make sense, this is dangerous, but they follow God. I'm gonna go after them. I'm gonna follow. I'll sacrifice. A father's love for his children is often expressed in the sacrifices they make, whether it's in times of crisis or in the everyday choices that a family has to make. And being a dad has taught me that, that God is patient, but it also, he's taught me how much he provides through his sacrifices. And finally, God has taught me um, that he is always present. God has taught me that he is always present, even when we don't feel his presence, he is there. In scripture, the word father is used more than 1,100 times, uh, usually in the context of God the Father. But he's setting up this example of the household of God, that he's the father, that Jesus is the eldest son, and, and we're the siblings, but it's used 1,100 times. But it is becoming increasingly harder to find fathers in the homes of American households. In the 1960s, about 11% of the households in the United States, uh, were, there was children growing up without their biological father in the home. That number has swelled to about 33% now. One in every three children in a home that there's not the biological father present. That number goes up in African-American communities to 70, some say as high as 80% in our cities. When a child grows up without a father, and, and by the way, like you can have a father present, but they be very absent. Just because they're, their proximity does not mean that they're there emotionally and relationally. But when, when, your child, when you grow up without a father, um, those children are 400% more likely to grow up in poverty. They are more likely to be abused. They're more likely to die in their infancy. They're uh, much more likely to go to prison. And the list goes on and on and on. And so we carry these, these daddy wombs and we have these relational implications because of the absence of so many men in our life. The, the way we view our, our fathers or the male figures in our household is often how we perceive God. And the way we view or perceive God is often dictates how we treat others around us in other relationships. I just wanna say that God's love for you supersedes the abandonment and pain that you may have felt in your past. The thing that is greater, I promise you, even though you may not sense that at this moment, the thing that is greater than the pain that you may carry from any kind of womb, relational wombs, particularly from your fathers, is superseded by God's love. Your father may not have been present, but your heavenly father is omnipresent. He is always with you. He was always there. Uh, I, my, one of the mistakes that I've made um, in the past 18 years as fathering is probably presence. I travel a lot for work or I have things and I, I work long hours. And so one of the things that I would do is uh, I traveled a lot, so I'd build up a lot of hotel points, airline points. And so I'd try to take my girls with me on a trip every year and a half or so. So I went to some really neat places, took them to Grand Canyon, took them to Portland, 
I took my youngest, Mishy, to Boston a couple of years ago, and we did some meetings in Boston, then we drove up to Maine, and we went to one of these old lobster shacks on the river, along the, yeah, along the coast there, and we got some lobster, paid way too much, but we just had fun. I mean, we made a mess, had butter and lemon dripping all over us, and, you know, crab, had the bibs on, had a really good time. And that, later on that night, we're doing dinner. I'm like, where, where do you want to go? You want to go to McDonald's? There's taco. You know, what do you want? He's like, can we go back to the lobster place? I'm like, okay. So we went back to the lobster place. And, you know, all of that stuff is fun. It builds memories. But really what I was doing is I'm trying to play makeup. I'm trying to shove a year of relationships into two or three days of a special time with them. And, and, and sometimes I think that's how we feel with God. You know, we feel like God is absent we don't have this feeling. We don't have this, um, this sense of his presence in our life. And then we'll go to a worship service or we'll sit in a small group and we feel this real sense of power with him. And we're like, this is incredible. And then, then it's gone again. And, and there's this sense of, is God really present with us? Is he there with us? In the Old Testament, the people primarily worshiped in two types of spaces. The first was the tabernacle, which was basically a traveling tent. As the, the Israelites were traveling and wandering, they, would have, they had this tabernacle that they would worship in. Uh, once they got established in Israel, they built a large temple, real grand temple that God gave them very specific instructions on how to build that. And that represented God's presence. So if you wanted to be in the presence of God, because God seemed to, to manifest his presence at certain places, you, you, would, you would go to the tabernacle or later on in the temple. There's a, a guy in the Old Testament. Most would know him as King David. Uh, before he was King David, he was just David. He was, his best friend was a, a, a boy named Jonathan whose dad was the king. His name was Saul. King David, or excuse me, David at the time, became real popular. He slayed a giant. Some of these stories you may or may not have heard but he became very popular in the community. People looked to him, they loved him, he was charismatic, he was brave. And so they had more respect for David than Saul, the king. And this made Saul very angry. And so he went after David. And David, because his best friends is the king's dad, his dad is the king, instead of fighting back, he just fled and ran. And so he was a very devout believer. God said, you know, David's man after my own heart. So he had this connection with God. And when he fled, he left where the tabernacle was. So in his mind, he left the very presence of God. Like he couldn't go and worship God because he couldn't go to the tabernacle. It'd be like, you know, you can't come Sunday morning. So we know different because of what Christ did and, and made us available to God in a different way. But, but David felt like he couldn't get into the presence of God because he was running and fleeing uh, from King Saul. And in the midst of all of that pain, in the midst of all that agony, he, he writes in Psalm 42, 1 and 2, and you maybe, you may probably have heard this verse and seen it before. It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, or as the deer pants for the water, so pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He's a man on the run who misses being in the presence of his God. 
And we hear this verse, and we'll see a picture sometimes. I've seen pictures where it's a couple beautiful fawns, white-spotted fawns running through fields with lilies and a little stream kind of running through the middle of that field. That doesn't capture what David is feeling. It doesn't capture the raw emotion of what David is saying here. It says, as the deer pants for the streams of water. He's not talking about deers that are frolicking through a field. He's talking about deers that have just been hunted. See, the way they would hunt back then, they didn't have guns or bows and arrows. They had dogs. They had these deer hounds. Big, strong, you can Google them, get a picture of them. Big, strong dogs, large, uh, narrow snout, big, strong legs. And they would take two or three of the dogs, put them on a leather leash type rope, leather leash, and they would go out and the hunter would take them to the field and allow the dog to kind of smell and sniff and, and get scent of a deer. As soon as they got scent of the deer, they would start pulling against that leather leash or that rope, pulling tight and jumping, going after. And when they would get so excited and so just consumed by what the hunt, then he would let them off the leash. And then they would go after and start chasing the deer. This hunt could go on for hours. Uh, they would, you know, be, get, they were fast um, and they had endurance. The deer was a little bit faster and had agility. It could bounce back and forth. The deer's only hope was to, to use its agility and bounce back and forth and get into the thickest part of the woods. If it could get into the thick part of the woods and, and lose some of the scent and it was a lot harder for the dogs to get in there, it maybe had a chance of surviving. So these dogs would be nipping at the deers, chasing it, not for two or three minutes, but sometimes for an hour or two hours as they're running through the woods and the deers trying to find a safe place, a refuge, a, a place to get away from the dogs. Then oftentimes after, not often, but sometimes after two hours, the, the deer would lose the dogs. It would be able to get away. More times than not, what would happen is the deer would die of exhaustion before the dogs got to it. They would just fall over and then the dogs got their prize. But sometimes the deer would get away. Then it has a new enemy. What do you think it is? It's thirst. It's water. The deer would often die after the hunt because it would die of thirst. Now, King David says, as the deer pants for flowing streams of water, after the hunt, so pants my soul for you. God, if I don't get in your presence, I'm going to die. All I, the only thing that will, that will quench this thirst is your presence. And, and David was in a, a low place right now. He would be in counseling right now. He would maybe be on medication. He, he's, in a, he's in a low place thinking that God is far from me. In parenting, sometimes I felt that way. I felt like God was far from me. Where is he in the middle of this? And I know I can look across this room because I see some of you kind of leaning forward and you feel God is far from you. You've, you're wondering like, where is God in the midst of all of this? I'm begging, I'm pleading. I maybe don't feel it as strong as David did, but I just want to be quenched by his spirit. But the good thing is David figured it out. David understood that even in the midst of his lowest point, that God had never departed from him. Later on, he would write in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, 
the underworld, says you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Do you see the difference? There's not a place that David can go to escape from God. God was always in the presence of David. God never left him. But like David, your soul sometimes thirsts for God. And that draws you closer to him when you have this sense of not having something that you really want and you can't get that quenched and it makes you desire it more. So just hang in there. God is using this time to build your desire for him. Like David before, your soul may be thirsting for God and you may feel far from him, but he is leading you in this moment. His right hand is guiding you. God doesn't have to do makeup trips. God doesn't have to take you on special places to make up for his absence. Because he was never, never absent. Being a dad has just taught me so much about God. And there are principles that, that aren't unique to being a parent, that all of us learn or need to learn in some way. But God just used being a father uh, to, to instill these deeper in my life. The, the idea that, that God is patient. In my sin, I offend him so often, yet he still is patient. Through the long suffering, he loves me. That, that God provides. It may not always be how I thought it should be or wanted it to be, but man, God has provided. He, he, has, he has given the security. He has given us joy and happiness. He has provided in the times of my greatest needs and even outside when I had great needs. But God has also been present. I look back and I see in the times where I thought he wasn't, I see where God's presence was reigning in my life. We as fathers, mothers, even church family are just a reflection of God to our children. You may say, I don't have kids yet. I'm not a dad. It's Father's Day. This, no, no, this is for all of us. Church is not like a family. It is a family. We all share responsibility in reflecting the image of God to our children and to the lost world. The, the weight of our children knowing and loving God is a family responsibility. And, and I think about God's patience and I think about God's uh, provisions. And I think about God's presence. And I can become fear-stricken at times. Because I'm supposed to be a reflection of God to my children. As an elder and a pastor here, I'm supposed to be a reflection of God to you guys. And you are to be a reflection of God to your friends and your family, particularly those that, that don't know him as, as their Lord. And when I think about his perfection, I mean, we sang about it. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. And it makes me realize I am very imperfect in all of my ways. Yet God says, calls me to this level of perfection. And that puts a weight and a fear on me until I realize that the cross makes me perfect in God's sight. That the cross is what removes my imperfection and makes me perfect before God. The cross is what allows me to be imperfect and yet people still get a glimpse of God. Even in my imperfections. 
1 Corinthians 13, the, the, the love chapter that we read at weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, but verse 12, we usually don't get to this part. It says this, and it may be a different translation that's up there, I apologize, but it says, for now we see indistinctly, we see not very clear. So we don't see it very clear. It says, for now we see indistinctly as in a mirror. So back then, a mirror you look at today has a really good reflection, has a really good sense of what you're actually looking at. Back then, uh, when this was written, a mirror was just a piece of metal that they would try to polish up as much as they can so you could get a dim reflection of what was actually happening. So he says, for now, we don't see clearly in this mirror. It's just a dim reflection. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully. Right now, we're a dim reflection of God. Men, fathers-to-be, you will always be to your kids a dim reflection of God. Here's the hope. God just said that's enough. God said that's enough. Because one day, they will see face-to-face. They will see fully the glory, the holiness, the perfection of God. And in this world, a dim reflection is enough. A dim reflection is enough. There's our hope. God will use you to teach others to demonstrate, to be a reflection of these important attributes of him. Father, we thank you that you remove the weight of having to be perfect in all of our ways like you are. Father, we thank you that just a reflection, a dim reflection, like when we're looking into a a muddy pool and just can kind of see the shadows and the outlines, that that's enough because your holiness is so incredible. Your presence is so so incredible that, Lord, just being that, that minor reflection can draw people to you so that one day, face to face, they will see you in your fullness. We will see you in, our, in your fullness. So Father, until that day, help us to, to strive, to war on, to, to draw closer to you, to love you more so that we can love others more and show others the love that you have for them. Lord, we thank you for your patience with us. We mess up all the time, Father. It's not easy for you. You have anger, you have wrath. long-suffering. You sent your son for that. And so, Father, we thank you. Father, we thank you for providing for us in ways that we don't. Lord, every time we wake up in the morning, that was because you provided something for us. Every step we take, you provided something for us. Father, we thank you for that. And Lord, for your presence. Even when we don't feel it, help us to have the faith that you are still there. And when we don't feel it, draw us closer to you, Father. May we long for you like David longed for you, like the deer longs for the water after the hunt. Father, and then may we take these truths about you and be a reflection to our children, to our church family, and to those that aren't a part of this family yet. 
we want to see them adopted into this family, your family. In your son's precious and holy name, amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.